What's happening in the world right now coming up on NTD News. First, our top stories. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis allowed journalists to pick his brain on key policy areas, this after officially tossing his hat into the ring of the 2024 election. We have the key takeaways. Newly released documents about an investigation into the Clinton Foundation. Why did the FBI close the case? We bring you the new findings. Political turmoil in Texas. The GOP goes after one of its own as Attorney General Ken Paxton stands accused of felonious behavior while in office. Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Our top news is on Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign launch. With that behind him, NTD's Daniel Monahan brings us some key takeaways from the event. DeSantis paid a price for gambling on a new launch format. The Twitter chat room crashed after some 600,000 listeners attempted to tune in. But after tech issues were resolved, the conversation on Twitter spaces and later on Fox News quickly turned to policy, both foreign and domestic. DeSantis was asked how he would handle the perception among Republicans that the FBI is being weaponized. The Florida governor responded that FBI Director Christopher Wray would be out the door on day one. You need someone that's got a really strong backbone. You need somebody that knows if you're going in there and you're taking care of business, the Washington Post is not going to like you. New York Times is not going to like you. You're going to get attacked by CNN. He added that the DOJ and FBI have lost their way and become very partisan. If the FBI or DOJ would ever collude with a tech company to try to censor information, everybody involved with that would be fired immediately. On abortion, DeSantis had this to say. Well, I've been proud as governor to stand for a culture of life, and I think all Republicans need to do that. DeSantis said Florida succeeded in signing legislation protecting unborn children with a detectable heartbeat, calling it a humane thing to do. On China, DeSantis emphasized the need to recognize the country as the foremost geopolitical threat and emphasized the importance of restoring critical manufacturing capabilities within the United States. DeSantis stressed the significance of recognizing China's increasing presence in the Western Hemisphere. I think we need a 21st century version of the Monroe Doctrine uh, where we're making sure that our own backyard uh, is a freedom zone. The Monroe Doctrine viewed foreign intervention in the Americas as potentially a hostile act. On electability, DeSantis argued that he is broadly acceptable to Republicans and has a proven record of winning the independent voters he'll need to defeat Biden. DeSantis also discussed his legal case with Disney and Florida's parental rights law, which Disney opposed. The presidential candidate said the sexualization of kids he sees taking place is wrong. And in Florida, we say we're the state where woke goes to die. You know, as president, I'm going to make sure woke ideology ends up in the dustbin of history. On Ukraine, DeSantis says the goal is to settle the war and avoid any larger conflict that could draw in American troops. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Next, we get some analysis on the manner in which Governor Ron DeSantis announced his bid for the presidency. And we also hear some things Americans should be on the lookout for as Election Day nears. Joining me now is Jeffrey Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute. Jeffrey, we really do appreciate having you on today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. When entrepreneur Elon Musk bought Twitter, he said... Free speech is the bedrock of a functioning democracy. And when Governor DeSantis made his announcement on Twitter Spaces, he said he praised the site as a free speech bastion. Can you give us a little context surrounding DeSantis's decision to announce there? 
The context is three years of astonishing censorship from all the high-profile social media organizations that still goes on uh, today. Even now, you can't upload a video to YouTube without getting it you know, deleted if you if you say something uh, that's contrary to uh, political priorities of the left, basically. And so um, Elon's purchase of Twitter was quite remarkable. He did it because he thought it had a lot of—he was going to have some fun and— and and introduce some uh, uh, diversity into prevailing opinions that are shaping the public mind. He did that, and as soon as he arrived, he discovered that that there were all sorts of FBI employees embedded there. He's released all sorts of files showing that, as he put it, you know, no matter your conspiracy theory, the reality is actually worse. He ended up firing four out of five employees. And making the the thing function better than it ever has. Most importantly, he uh, got rid of the censors and the, and the machinery of the censorship, and uh, re-enabled tens of thousands of accounts or more that were deleted over the course of the previous three years, leaving Twitter as one of the few mainstream, uh, high-profile uh, spots on the whole of the World Wide Web that's not fully controlled by deep state interests. Uh, DeSantis knew this full well and is friends with a lot of people who were banned over the course of this period and decided to use the platform to announce his uh, his his uh, his pres presidential run. So I thought it was a very smart decision. And Jeffrey, in terms of Governor DeSantis breaking from the norm in some cases, such as not going with the lockdown narrative and making new decisions there and now announcing on Twitter spaces, can you give us some more context surrounding that? Uh, right. So he was one of the few governors to, uh, well, Christian Nome of South Dakota never went along with the pandemic planning to, uh, for the outset. But, and then Georgia was the first state to break free. Um, and then uh, Florida was the second one. And he had a perfectly normal spring break in, uh, in April of 2020. And he was assaulted by the New York Times. And the, he gradually opened up everything. But once he lost all uh, trust in the public health, and by August uh, of, you know, after the following, after the George Floyd riots, he opened up Florida just completely, and then other states followed. And there were all sorts of predictions of doom that never happened. His, his performance on the pandemic issues is actually superior to uh, California and New York, which locked down extremely hard. So uh, he's bitter about this, and he is in part running to protect uh, the rights of Americans against these kind of administrative uh, edicts coming from, from Washington and state houses around the country. And Jeffrey, when we zoom out to the election as a whole, what advice do you have for Americans as they watch on for this election cycle in terms of misinformation and also in this era of so-called fake news? Right. Uh, so the headlines this morning all over the New York Times, which is my go-to for disinformation uh, media. <laughs> they said that uh, the appearance on, on Twitter Spaces was a disaster because there were about 20 minutes of technological glitches. Those glitches happened because so many people tried to get in. There would have been millions of people probably there. It ended up being about 600,000 at the peak, but that was after switching accounts and moving you know, the hosting, the, the, the host and all sorts of things because there are so many people crowding the platform at once. So it was a it was a, a trial run of a, of a very large, highly scaled um, uh, platform. And the New York Times focused only on that. Now, 
what was what's interesting to me about this is like how many times have you shown up to a political speech? I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but it's probably happened to many people. You show up to a political speech and the guy or a woman who's speaking doesn't show up for another hour or two or even more. And that never makes the news. That's just kind of expected. So we get 20 minutes of glitches, you know, at the opening of the space. And that turns out to have been the stuff of, of, of which New York Times assembled fully two front page articles this morning. So that's the kind of disinformation you need to look out for. Some scaling issues there. And of course, what the person says, obviously what the politician says is very important. Jeffrey A. Tucker, founder and president of the Brownstone Institute, really do appreciate your time today. It's my pleasure. Thank you. In other news, the FBI was prompted to close an investigation into the Clinton Foundation because prosecutors refused to bring charges. That's what new documents are unveiling. Here are the details on the new findings. The U.S. Attorney's Office for the Eastern District of Arkansas declined to bring charges against the Clinton Foundation in January 2021. That's according to documents received by the New York Times through a Freedom of Information Act request. No charges being filed prompted the FBI to close the case, which had been worked on for years. While Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, she was a member of the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. The committee approved the sale of a majority of Uranium One, a company that has mines and other projects, to a Russian state-owned company. That same year, Bill Clinton received $500,000 from a Russian government-linked bank to speak in Moscow. The Clinton Foundation also received undisclosed donations from Uranium One officials, despite previously agreeing to disclose them. The newly released Durham report showed this prompted allegation that foreign governments had made or offered to make contributions to the foundation in exchange for favorable or preferential treatment from Clinton. After the donations became known in 2015, the foundation said, We made mistakes, as many organizations of our size do, but we are acting quickly to remedy them and have taken steps to ensure they don't happen in the future. In 2017, Hillary Clinton was asked about the payments from Russia, indicating Russian collusion. There's been no, no credible evidence by anyone. In fact, it's been debunked repeatedly and will continue to be debunked. A former FBI agent told the Epic Times the timing of the case's closure is suspicious, saying they could use the veil of can't comment on an ongoing investigation during the Trump administration. Then the Biden administration comes in, they close it, and they destroy the evidence. So now they can't provide it to Congress. It's too convenient. What's more, a Republican congressman said the Durham report also shows that prosecutors chose not to take the Clinton investigation seriously and instead focus on investigating the Trump campaign. The U.S. Department of Justice declined to comment when requested by the Epic Times. The Clinton Foundation also didn't return inquiries. More in the political sphere, a Republican-led investigation is accusing Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton of committing multiple crimes, including felonies, while in office. Investigators allege Paxton sought to hide an affair, misused his office to help a donor, violated protocols, and built a culture of fear and retaliation in his office. The investigation has been quietly going on for months, but did not come to light until Tuesday. A hearing on Wednesday ended without action on the findings, Paxton called the hours of testimony by investigators false and accused the committee of misleading the public. The hearing came as Paxton is seeking approval for more than $3 million in taxpayer money, this to settle a whistleblower lawsuit with top aides who accused him of corruption. President Biden will announce his nominee for the next chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. 
It's the United States' highest military position. Biden's pick is Air Force General C.Q. Brown, Jr. He is chief of staff of the Air Force and a career F-16 fighter pilot. He served as the Pacific Air Force's commander, where he led the nation's air strategy to counter the Chinese regime in the Indo-Pacific. Biden reportedly sees Brown as the right person for the job because of his work modernizing the U.S. fleet of aircraft and his experience with China. The nomination has long been expected. Brown would replace Army General Mark Milley if confirmed by the Senate. The president plans to unveil Brown as his pick during a Rose Garden event this afternoon. And coming up, there is a new kind of money in the works. What do you think of central bank digital currencies? Would you like a state-backed alternative? Stay tuned to find out about it. Welcome back. Let's talk about something most everyone uses, currency. The paper money usually exchanged in the U.S. is fiat money, meaning it's printed on paper, which basically has no value. Its value is derived from the government or the law. But the Lone Star State is now looking into an alternative. Have a listen. Please welcome Kevin Friedman, the host of the Economic War Room podcast. Kevin, thank you so much for making the time today. Oh, my pleasure. Can you tell us a little bit more about this digital currency based on gold and silver that Texas is considering? Oh, absolutely. In fact, digital is a little bit of a misnomer. What it is is an electronic means of using gold and silver. Uh, It's available commercially. There are versions like GlintPay, and there's a number of debit cards in Europe that, that basically are ability to spend, buy, sell gold all through an app or electronically or a debit card. We just want to pair that with the existing bullion depository that we have in Texas. And if we do that, we'll create what is constitutional money. Article 1, Section 10 money, the founders left in. States can have their own money as long as it's gold and silver coin. So, Kevin, what are the advantages of this kind of currency, especially in this era of high inflation? Well, that's you just named it. Uh, in, in the era of high inflation, you want something that protects its purchasing power. When the U.S. dollar left the gold standard in 1971, From that day until today, the dollar has lost 87% of its purchasing power. What used to cost a dime, like a candy bar, now costs a buck and a half, two dollars. And that's true across the board. You think of something in 1971 that's not massively more expensive today. But by contrast, gold has held its value. It was $40 an ounce in the year 1971. It's $2,000 an ounce today. Silver was a dollar and a half an ounce. Today, it's close to $25 an ounce. So bottom line, it helps people protect their money. That's an advantage. And the second real advantage is in this era of central bank digital currencies and federal control and everything else, It's nice to have a state-based alternative that's allowed under the Constitution that could protect your wealth, preserve your purchasing power, and at the same time preserve your privacy. So, Kevin, you talk about purchasing power. If someone has a dollar in cash money and then they have a dollar in this digital currency backed by gold, and then the government does something or some crisis happens and the value of the dollar goes down, what happens to their value of their digital currency? Well, gold generally tends to go up in value when there's crisis in the world, so it tends to protect its value, but gold moves around all the time. I'm not trying to tell you that every day the value of your gold will go higher relative to the dollar. There are many days it doesn't. 
But over the long term, it's always proven to be the case. When we left, when we instituted the Federal Reserve in 1913, from then till now, we've lost about 97% of our purchasing power of our dollar. So bottom line is having an alternative. It's like a personal gold standard that you can have. And really, the means of transacting electronically just means that you can spend it. You can buy a stick of gum with your with your gold or you could pay for a new car with your gold. It's just another way to hold your wealth, protect your wealth and protect your privacy. And I would imagine you can use this in other states, other countries, yes? Well, GlentPay is on the MasterCard rails, and so you can take your gold that's in, at the Glent Depository in Switzerland, you can spend it anywhere in the world. We believe the same will be true for Texas. Now, we have to get the legislation passed first, but the constitutional means are there. There's a Supreme Court decision in 1837 that says we can do this, that's been cited four times in modern history and never been um, turned down. And plus, we have the ability with our bullion depository. So all the key ingredients are in place. We just need to get the Texas legislature to pass the bills that we have, or we need to go to a special session with Governor Abbott and get this passed into law. Sounds very novel. You mentioned there is some precedent to this here. Kevin Freeman, host of the Economic War Room podcast. It's really great to hear from you. Thank you very much. And learn more at economicwarroom.com. As artificial intelligence becomes more and more powerful, there is growing support to regulate the technology from world governments to technology companies. Here's more. Microsoft proposed regulations for artificial intelligence today. This amid broader growing support for regulating this technology that's becoming increasingly more powerful. Microsoft proposed a requirement where AI systems must be able to completely shut down, similar to an emergency stop button. The maker of ChatGPT, OpenAI, likened artificial intelligence to nuclear energy and said that this technology comes with the possibility of existential risk. And AI experts agree. Associate Professor of Computer Science at Rice University and Shumali Srivastava says people could use AI to generate computer codes that are malicious. There is, uh, there is a theoretical possibility that the codes that are generated by these AI could be malicious and could get access to the airline control system, the traffic control system. It could also lead to an existential threat. The OpenAI team said that superintelligence will be more powerful than other technologies humanity has to contend with. But currently a more immediate concern with AI is misinformation. That's according to Aaron Rafferty, CEO of tech company Standard DAO. There was an image, actually a couple images that that we saw go up on uh, Twitter and, and just online where um, you see President Trump and you also see in a you know parallel image President Biden and they're being arrested in New York City in the public square and it's very realistic. You know, in the future, we're going to be able to see uh, a, a number of uh, different ways that AI potentially um, being able to um, control the sentiment of people. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is also looking to develop a national AI strategy. But the question remains, how exactly do you regulate artificial intelligence? From my standpoint, um, obviously I'm not a regulator. However, transparency is a, it's a good start. We need to know what types of assumptions these models are making and how they are actually, uh, you know, implementing this information in these models into the wider population. First thing you need to first of all educate people, everyone about like, look, 
Just like Google search can give you wrong answers, these can give you wrong answers, misinformation. People know that information on Twitter, WhatsApp, whatever it is, it could be made up. People need to be aware the information can be made up and it could be made up every minute. The Biden administration is taking public input on how to regulate AI on areas like standards, investments, trust and safety practices. Attorneys general from 49 states are suing Avid Telecom. They claim the firm is involved in billions of illegal robocalls to millions of people. The lawsuit was filed on May 23rd in Arizona, where Avid Telecom is headquartered. The attorneys general say the company made over 7 billion robocalls to numbers on the do not call registry since 2019. The AGs wrote that the unwanted robocalls are scams designed to scare and harm consumers and that even robocalls that are not scams are harassing, abusive, and illegal. The lawsuit noted that illegal robocalls are the most common contact method used by scammers. Consumers have reported losing nearly $700 million to such scams in 2021 alone. And just ahead, the UK is debating a new Chinese embassy. The London Council already rejected the plan, but now it's not up to them. We'll have the details on that. And the U.S. and South Korea holding their largest ever live fire drills near the northern border. North Korea pushes back. Get the story in just a minute. Good to have you back. Turning to China, the country wants to build a new embassy in London, which would be its biggest European embassy, but the controversial plans were rejected by the local council. Now the decision has now gone up to the UK government, which could approve the scheme. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has more for us. The Chinese Communist Party wants to build a new Chinese embassy right behind me here in London. It would be China's biggest embassy in Europe. But the plans were rejected by the local Tower Hamlets Council following opposition from residents. After London's mayor didn't intervene in the decision, the scheme has now landed in the lap of the central government. Chinese authorities bought the former Royal Mint site in 2018. It's next to the Tower Bridge and Tower of London landmarks. The Chinese embassy's scheme includes partial demolition of the listed historical building and plans for extra surveillance cameras around the site, costing more than $250,000. The scheme to build the embassy was rejected for a number of reasons, including concerns from the local Muslim population over the Chinese regime's persecution of Uyghurs. But Mark Sidwell, director of research for the Henry Jackson Society, said the British government may give green light to the plans. So the British are trying to uh, refurbish and build a new embassy for themselves in Beijing. And this has been uh, you know, delayed a little bit, and it has been explicitly linked by the Chinese ambassador uh, in the UK to their own project in London, saying that you know, one will go ahead if the other one does. In a speech in late April, Foreign Secretary James Cleverley said he is determined to see a new British embassy built in Beijing. Now, since that is going to require the uh, approval of Beijing's embassy in London, uh, I think we can say that central government is going to approve it. Sidwell added that the embassy is something from the so-called golden era of relationships with Beijing. But it appears times have changed. You know, the government itself is trying to have things both ways. It's trying to uh, 
maintain friendly relations and engagement where it can with China while also holding the line against authoritarianism. It's not clear that you can really do both these things. But I think something that's become clear in this process, in the actions of Tower Hamlet's Council, is that the government can't control what goes on at the grassroots. This, this new embassy in a very prominent site is going to become a target for protests. And that's not something that the government here would want to stop or could stop. And it's something the Chinese are going to have to live with. He said the CCP should choose somewhere more modest or the embassy will be targeted with very public protests near major tourist sites. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London. All right, and heading to the Pacific, the U.S. and South Korea are holding their largest ever live fire drills. The troops simulated a full-scale attack from North Korea. The war games kicked off on the northeastern border near North Korea. The exercise will last five days with 2,500 soldiers and hundreds of military vehicles participating. That includes tanks, howitzers, and fighter jets. The joint exercise marks the 70th anniversary of the U.S.-South Korea alliance. Pyongyang said earlier it won't tolerate what it called a war rehearsal right on its doorstep. Last month, President Biden and his South Korean counterpart announced the Washington Declaration. The two leaders vowed to increase cooperation to counter North Korea's nuclear threat. China is both supplying and sabotaging the U.S. electrical grid. That's according to Kevin Stockland, Epic Times business reporter, film producer, and former Wall Street banker. NTD's Chris Beers sat down with him to discuss his new article on the topic. Kevin Stockland, thank you for joining us. Chris, thanks for having me. So you've written a new article for the Epoch Times. Can you tell us about it? Uh, Yeah, so uh, we've been looking into the vulnerabilities to our electric grid that come from the uh, importation of hardware from countries that may be uh, unfriendly to us, particularly China. And, and, And what kind of vulnerabilities are we talking about? It's very interesting. So over the past 10 years, uh, China has managed to supply somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of the uh, transformers for our electric grid. Um, They have become competitive with the usual suppliers, which are uh, Siemens, a German company, company, and ABB, which is a Swiss company. We're now seeing Chinese companies step up and start to supply this hardware. Um, However, our our electric grid is, is heavily dependent on these transformers. If these uh, systems, if these machines ever break down, it could uh, essentially um, essentially end the um, functionality of our grid. And what would happen if the functionality of our grid got shut down? What would happen for uh, people living here? It's it's such a doomsday scenario. It's uh, something that people prefer not to think about. Um, you know, we think of it maybe in terms of light switches and, and and refrigerators and things like this. But hospitals would no longer be able to run. Our our communication system breaks down. A lot of our supply chains would no longer function. Um, and you know, things like uh, water delivery and water purification, certainly heating um, and air conditioning. You know, all these systems would disappear overnight. And people are predicting that, you know, were something like this to happen and even drag on for a matter of weeks or months, which is typically, uh, you know, to replace one of these transformers is a matter of months or years, um, you could be looking at a societal collapse in the United States. That's pretty scary. How do we know China is actually hacking our electrical grid? You, you mentioned this Honeywell lab in your article. 
Yeah, so um, you know, certainly we've seen a number of cyber attacks coming from China, from Russia, uh, from Iran, um, and the U.S. may engage in some of this behavior as well. But um, what's new is this is actually not us. We're not talking about cyber attacks in this case, even though they are ongoing. We're looking at actual um, hardware vulnerabilities. One of the shocking examples uh, in uh, 2020, uh, President Trump had declared a state of emergency over our electric grid and banned the importation of uh, Chinese hardware into the grid. And um, at that time, in May of 2020, uh, federal agents seized a transformer that had just arrived on the boat from China. It was going to be sent to a utility in Colorado. Um, they took it to a lab where um, Honeywell had disassembled it to go through it and see, are there any vulnerabilities built into it? And what they found was that in some of the computer chips, a um, what's called a backdoor was built in that allowed China to control this transformer remotely and shut it down at will. Does the U.S. have any plans to start producing uh, components for our electrical grid domestically? Um, so our Department of Energy sounds like they might be thinking about that and possibly using the Defense Production Act to try to fund some of this. Um, unfortunately, these are fairly sophisticated um, machines and they're, they tend to be custom made. And so at the moment, there are a small number of engineering firms that actually produce them. But hopefully we can get U.S. companies up to speed, uh, consider this a, a strategic issue, and get U.S. companies up to speed in producing them. But the Department of Energy has informed uh, the Senate during a hearing in March that this is not a short-term solution. This is something that we can only think of in the medium or the long term. Okay. Kevin Stockland. Uh, business reporter for the Epoch Times and producer of the Shadow State documentary, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Just ahead, the head of Russia's Wagner Mercenary Group often directly criticizes the top brass. We explore why he's able to push the envelope in President Putin's Russia. And a severe hailstorm swept through villages in Spain, leaving streets covered in ice. We'll have more for you shortly, right here on NTD News Today. Good to have you back with us. We're continuing our coverage with the Ukraine war. Russia's most powerful mercenary often levels criticism at the alleged treachery of the country's top brass. But such words are dangerous in Vladimir Putin's Russia. Just a warning for you, this report contains graphic images. As Yevgeny Prigozhin announced the fall of the destroyed Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, Russia's most powerful mercenary appeared to hand its president a rare battlefield victory. The founder of the Wagner Group thanked Vladimir Putin for the opportunity to defend the motherland. But he couldn't resist breaking some taboos. In Bakhmut, we were not only fighting the armed forces of Ukraine, we were fighting the Russian bureaucracy, he said, specifically naming and shaming Defense Minister Sergei Shoigu and Chief of the General Staff Valery Gerasimov. It comes after earlier this month he used a profanity-laden video to criticize the two, 
accusing them of allowing five times more men to die than was necessary. But this kind of speech is dangerous in Putin's tightly controlled political system. Public criticism of the war isn't tolerated. So how does Prigozhin get away with it? Officials, diplomats, and analysts told Reuters that he's likely acting with the tacit approval of those dismayed by the military's war conduct. Sources diverge on how to interpret his actions. A Russian source said he represents one side in a struggle within Putin's system. A former FSB officer said Prigozhin's verbal lobs towards the defense ministry are the result of contradictions that have come out within the ruling clan. He suggested it could mark the beginning of a struggle for life after Putin. But one Western diplomat told Reuters, Prigozhin would likely make for a weak potential rebel as he doesn't have an independent logistic capacity. With an election looming next year, it's unclear how long Putin will tolerate the open war of words. State television ignored the apparent fall of Bakhmut for 20 hours. It took the Kremlin 10 to put out a terse, congratulatory statement. And it didn't name Prigozhin. For his part, Prigozhin said he'd hand Bakhmut over to the Russian army by June. Prigozhin, the Kremlin, and the defense ministry did not respond to requests seeking comment. New estimates show migration to the UK hit a record high last year. Over 600,000 more people arrived to the islands than those that left. The figure is up by nearly 18 percent on 2021. Official estimates suggest 1.2 million people migrated to the UK in 2022, while just 560,000 left the region in the same period. These figures include people who arrived to the UK from Ukraine and Hong Kong under resettlement schemes, as well as overseas students. A court in London has issued a teenager with a criminal behavior order and fined him hundreds of dollars for entering a home as part of a TikTok prank video. The 18-year-old man appeared at the court yesterday where he admitted to one count of failing to comply with a community protection notice. The notice issued to him last year included conditions that he must not trespass on private property. This was breached when he entered a home earlier this month. The prosecutor said the man filmed the entire incident for a TikTok trend about walking into random houses. She said it caused the family a lot of distress, including two children who were home at the time. The man described his actions as having fun, but said he later felt bad and therefore apologized. A hailstorm yesterday swept villages in northeastern Spain, leaving streets covered in ice. Eyewitness footage shows a vehicle trapped in a street by chunks of ice and cars driving along a road partially covered in ice caused by the hailstorm. Local authorities had to use diggers to clear the ice from the streets. The hailstorm generated flooding in some homes, causing problems for local residents. The storms come as Spain has registered the driest start to a year since records started, with less than half the average rainfall during the first four months of the year. And still to come, sex education in French classrooms is in the spotlight. We hear from a psychologist who says WHO guidelines on the topic are concerning. And a man who was paralyzed 12 years ago is walking again thanks to a new device. Learn more about the new technology after the break.
Welcome back. In France, parents are calling out sex education in public schools for inappropriate content for children. A psychologist says the teaching materials are often based on WHO guidelines that member countries like France have to follow. Entities France correspondent David Vives has the details. Wolf Moms, a French parents group, last month sent a letter to the education ministry denouncing sex education in France's classrooms that they say goes too far. The letter, which was co-signed by other parents groups, mentioned the example of a nurse who came into a year five classroom in eastern France. She encouraged the children to try out various sexual practices. Wolf Moms said this is not an isolated case. The ministry did not respond to their letter, the group told NTD. In September 2022, the education minister announced that there will be at least three lessons on sex education in French schools. Ariane Biron is a psychologist and author who is critical of sex education in schools and so-called sexual rights for teenagers and children. She says the content of sex education often goes back to WHO guidelines from member states. Clearly, these are guidelines that are promoted and supported by the WHO to convey the idea that there's sexuality from the earliest age with zero standards for sex education in Europe. The WHO has a so-called sexual health program with a subcategory called sexual rights, which is a kind of legislation on the sexuality of populations. And all of this leads to sexuality education or sex education from the age of zero. Biron says such standards for sex education apply anywhere where children socialize. I would remind you that this is education. This instruction within the standards for sex education in Europe does not only concern the school, but all the socialization environments of the child. It's very important. So leisure time, sports, music, all the places where children participate and where there is a socialization of the child. A French government report found many teachers opt not to provide sex education in the classrooms as they find the content isn't meeting children's needs. The Ministry of Health relies on the WHO guidelines. It's based on agreements that bind the government to the WHO and makes countries subject to the WHO's health policy. We can see, we know today, that we have a regulation that's being studied, an international health regulation that is binding for countries. This includes so-called sexual health. Then there's an obligation to follow the WHO's guidelines or face fines contained in the WHO regulations themselves. This is very important. It says that states must respect the WHO guidelines, and this is called a fulfillment of an obligation. Biron says exposing children to sexual content can lead to serious trauma, and they should be protected from it. So it's extremely serious what's happening, this trivialization, this confusion that exists in these guidelines. Well, we're dealing with perverse guidelines. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. A man who was paralyzed 12 years ago is again walking thanks to a new device. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on the technology that connects his brain and his spinal cord. 
A cycling accident in 2011 left Gert Jan Oskum paralyzed after the spinal cord in his neck was damaged. But today, he's back on his feet. Within five to ten minutes, I could control my uh, uh, hips, like they were like the brain implant uh, picked up what I was doing with my hips. So that was like yeah, the best outcome I think for everyone. When Oscom thinks about walking, electrodes on his brain relay the message to electrodes on his spinal cord, stimulating the spine. To walk, the brain must send a command to the region of the spinal cord responsible for the control of movement. When there is a spinal cord injury, this communication is interrupted. Our idea was to re-establish this communication with a digital bridge. A signal is wirelessly transmitted and decoded by a computer that Oscom wears in a backpack. Then it transmits the information to the spinal pulse generator. We do two different surgeries. There is one surgery at the level of the brain. We do two little craniotomy, put electrodes in order to record the brain signal. And another surgery at the level of the spinal cord where we put electrodes on the top of the spinal cord at the place that is responsible for leg movement. After around 40 rehabilitation sessions, Oscom was able to move his legs and feet again. He can even walk short distances without the device if he uses crutches. Not only he could leverage the digital bridge in order to control his paralyzed muscle, but also show a recovery of neurological function he had lost for many years. Suggesting that this digital bridge also promote the growth of new nerve connections. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And after the break in New York, fans of Barbie dolls flock to a new restaurant themed around the iconic character. We'll be back with more for you soon right here on NTD News. Good to have you back. We have a cute story for you. Barbie dolls are a treasure for many American girls, and now a New York cafe is keeping that passion alive. Let's take a look. At Malibu Barbie Cafe, Mara Larratt and her family relived a fascination that spans generations. 1963, I got my first Barbie doll, and I was obsessed with Barbie ever since then. So when I saw that they were doing the Malibu Barbie pop-up cafe, I was so excited. I couldn't wait to bring my granddaughter. And I've loved Barbie since I was a little girl, too. I've been a Barbie girl since I was, I could, like, walk. So I'm so excited that, they, that you found this place, that my mother-in-law found this place, because we love it. I'm sharing it with her now. The themed cafe opened Wednesday in New York City's historic South Street Seaport. Barbie lovers from all age groups joined the opening ceremony. So today is my birthday. So we came for my birthday, and my daughter loves Barbie, so we decided to bring her here. The sand is good. I want to put, no, I want to sleep here for the rest of my life. I collect all the Barbies. I think it's awesome. It's very California, beachy, perfect time for the summer, and especially with the Barbie movie coming out. I think it's really exciting. I think it's a really cool concept. The 70s-inspired venue offers an all-day brunch menu, including beach burgers and Pacific Paradise rainbow pancakes. Customers can pose for photos with a life-size Barbie toy box. The response to Barbie has been overwhelmingly positive. 
Well, Barbie can be anything. You know, she has like a million and one careers. She's on TV all the time, and you know, she's a fashion icon. You can mix and match her outfits, and yeah. I think Barbie represents to me a multi generational woman who, as years have gone by, has really found her empowerment in being a woman and making little girls realize they could really be anything that they want to be. Malibu's Barbie Cafe is run by Bucket Listers, a digital media platform and event producer that works with toy maker Mattel. We really wanted to bring the world of Barbie to life through all of your five senses. Touch, smell, taste, everything. Through the lens of Barbie, really celebrating summer and creating an environment that was both uh, family friendly but fun for adults too. The cafe is open seven days a week through September 15th with a capacity to seat more than 8,000 customers per week. From Barbies to birds, a family of peregrine falcons nests on the football stadium at Michigan State University. Now, college students have tied bands on four fuzzy chicks. Members of the school's Fisheries and Wildlife Club attach metal bands on their feet. The bands allow researchers to track the birds' eventual migration patterns and survival rates. The club installed a web camera nearby last year to live stream the chicks making the family global celebrities. Decades ago, the species was classified as endangered after feeding on prey poisoned by pesticides. Recovery plans have saved them from near extinction. And that's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.